0: Welcome to Emergency to Emergence, a podcast produced by Sterling College. I'm Nakasi Fortune,
1: And I'm Dakota Lacroix.
0: This podcast intends to engage in spirited, heart-centered dialogue about intersecting eco-social emergencies, featuring the voices and perspectives of people purposefully engaging in ecological thinking and action, while fostering active, community-engaged responses that offer hope. Today we are joined by the one and only Richard Miskovich, renowned author, associate professor and bread expert. As an author, Richard penned From the Woodfired Oven. He's an associate professor and department chair for the College of Food Innovation and Technology at Johnson and Wales University. He also teaches courses at King Arthur Flower and Sterling College's School of the New American Farmstead. Richard, so kind of you to join us today to talk about bread, baking, and just life in general.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for being with us here today, Richard. Well, thank you, Nikasi
2: and Dakota and my extended Sterling family. As always, my interactions with Sterling people are great. And I just want to say for the people who are listening that I'm in uh, just south of Providence, Rhode Island, on the west side of Narragansett Bay, named after the Narragansett people who lived here before we did.
0: How did you get involved in bread and baking, Richard?
2: I have an early memory of, I grew up in Michigan in the 70s and in 80s, and uh, I was lucky enough to have Polish aunts and uncles who lived in Hamtramck, which is a Polish enclave in Detroit. When they would come to visit us, they would bring uh, Polish baked goods like rye bread. And to me, for someone living in mid-Michigan in the 70s, it was like seeing food from a different era. Well, it was food from a different era. Something about seeing that food really, it seemed like it was something from a museum. It It was different than things that my folks bought. And my folks were interested in food because my father was in the Air Force. Served in Vietnam, had a real predilection for being an adventurous eater.
1: Richard, could you tell us more about the adventures that your family took you on with food, and where it's leading you in your adventures currently?
2: I, I think the service. You know, my father being in in the Air Force and being stationed in England and traveling to Europe. This was before I was born, but my my older sisters uh, were. One of my sisters was born in England. My father traveled to North Africa a lot during that time, and then his time in Vietnam was very, you know, uh, transforming. and 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 he went to Thailand and kind of brought that back. So it 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 seems kind of pedestrian now. But growing up in Mid Michigan in the '70s, my my father was a big feta cheese and Kalamata <laughs> olive fan, and kimchi. You know, my father talked about kimchi when in 1976 and. I think that really, you know, just kind of opened my mind to what kind of foods were out there and the foods that my mom and dad were willing to seek out. And um, and also my dad was interested in food. He cooked a lot. So I had a really good upbringing and, uh, you know, equality in the kitchen. It was both of my parents making food.
0: Richard, you authored the book, From the Wood-Fired Oven. Can you tell us what sparked this journey of bringing these elements and traditional practices together?
2: I feel like I'm very lucky in the, you know, that I happen to be born in the part of the world that at the time of the world when I was in that the food culture in the United States was changing. And so I got interested. I was interested in bread baking as a young person. In fact, even worked in a proof and baked bakery in a, Grocery store during college, but it wasn't until about '93, when 1993, when I really got interested in baking bread at home. And you know, for the people who are listening, you know that was pre-internet days, <laughs> and um, it was harder to learn crafts like we we can think about um, now, bread baking online. So I got t- thoroughly enthused and um, excited about this and and found out that there were some bread baking classes in San Francisco at the San Francisco Bread Baking Institute. And at, simultaneously, I found out about an oven builder, Alan Scott, who's passed away now, who lived in Petaluma. So again, you know, through the luck of the draw, uh, I learned to bake bread. And I, I encountered this oven baking, oven building uh, icon at the same time. And those two things just fell together. They just dovetailed
1: so, Richard, it's not enough to be working with one living element. You had to work with two, fire and bread as an entity. Or tell us more about that. Like that it seems like there's so much going on there.
2: It's a good it's a really good observation, Dakota. And it's true, I mean, I did learn to bake bread pretty much in a wood-fired oven, and they both have their own characteristics and variables. Maybe you know, and and characteristics. I think each wood-fired oven has its own personality and each batch of bread can have its own personality as well. So meshing those and kind of controlling those variables and and being observant and knowing what variables you can control and and how to control variables that have gotten out of hand is a very rewarding way to make food, you know, and you're right. It's Fire is very primal and bread is, you know, very... um, fundamental, and when you bring those together, it's, it's very gratifying. It's, it's simple and complex at the same time.
0: Or should I have a, I, have, I have a pretty simple question, but if you will, can you describe what a wood-fired oven is?
2: A wood-fired oven is some sort of enclosure that's made of thermal mass. so it could be clay or it could be brick or it could be you know refractory concrete. We're talking about wood-fired oven specifically. And so whatever that the 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 thermal mass is what encloses the fire and what absorbs and retains heat. O- outside of that, ideally there is uh, an efficient insulation system that will keep that heat sequestered. So you have a say a brick box that's insulated. You build a fire inside the brick box. You can cook with fire, like many of us now are lucky enough to be around wood-fired um, pizzerias and and restaurants, or may have one in your own backyard. Mm-hmm. You, you, <laughs> you 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 build a fire within that brick box. You can cook with the heat of the fire, but at the same time, the thermal mass is absorbing heat, and the insulation is, you know, uh, wanting to keep the heat in that thermal mass. So when that fire is eventually uh, just burns out or is removed, you ha- have a stored thermal energy, very much like a battery, and and you can continue to use that heat in a descending heat cycle so that you might have bread baking temperatures. You, you might have the life fire cooking, um, cook food and make pizzas, and then you eventually take that fire out and you have retained heat at high temperatures approximately 500 degrees Fahrenheit. You bake hearth breads. That temperature continues to drop. You can make larger breads or breads that may have some sweeteners in them. And then you get into 350 degree temperatures. You can make all kinds of baked goods, casseroles, and it continues to drop down. And we you know, strive to harvest all of the heat that we've sequestered within that thermal mass. Um, as people used to do in communal ovens or in backyard ovens, knowing that they have a firing cycle and that from that energy that has been released through fire and, you know, basically stored in the thermal mass, we want to harvest it and turn it into food that we can that we can eat or or from anything from high temperature things down to this casserole, down to braising, down to infusions, down to drying herbs, and mushrooms, and being able to extend seasons by preserving food. So it's pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah. I'm fascinated by the process.
1: Yeah. Is the folklore true, Richard? Or could you tell me more about that of what I understand of the scoring of the bread, that marking of the bread, that these communal ovens? Back in the day, people used to mark them to know which... Bread was theirs as a community or a neighborhood. So communal
2: ovens are, you know, a a past entity and and becoming prevalent again of communities Mm. because uh, a wood fired oven has personality. People are drawn to it. They want to see it. They want to see the fire. They know from it come uh, life comes from that. And and if uh, a a village has uh, an oven and everyone knows what day it's going to be fired why not go and you know share that heat it's a massive amount of heat that extends for a long time so yeah it, everyone can cook in mm-hmm. in that in that heat and so because everyone is going to be using it, you may want your bread back that you yourself made you know which is which is typical and mm-hmm. also maybe your neighbor's not such a great baker all right so you, <laughs> <laughs> or, or they're or they're a better baker and you <laughs> want to try to get their bread so it is a you know a way for people to identify the bread the score mark also serves a utilitarian purpose in bread baking and allowing the bread to rise a little bit more ah. it's not solely uh you know being in possession of it there's a Mm -hmm. there's a fundamental reason for scoring for scoring bread but the the communal oven thing is interesting and and i i do think it's when we as, as we talked a little bit about old history and that's something that is coming back in this culture and we're quite fortunate to have that even up in the neck of the woods in sterling in johnson there's a community oven that was built, and it's right in the in the city green. And uh, people go there, I think, every Monday night for pizza bakes. And it does bring community together, right?
0: You use heritage greens a lot in your... In your baking, can you say what exactly they are and, you know, what are some of the benefits of using them?
2: There are a lot of different classes of grains and, and labels. And I've been influenced in my uh, perception of grains by Stephen Jones uh, from the Washington State University Bread Lab. And we, we all agree that we rejoice in heritage grains. And we rejoice in heritage, tomatoes, and all of those foods that have lasted through generations or millennia on some quality or another. One thing that Dr. Jones said, and this was quite a long time ago, is like, what we need to do is make sure that the food that we are growing is properly suited for the bioregion, you know? So the sake of growing some heritage grains in some parts of the world It's romantic, but it might not be the best for yield. It might not be the best for that bio region. It might not be best for flavor. And so, what we need to remember is that although heritage and land race and all of that is good, we want to preserve that seed stock. We also want to make sure that we're growing something that will do the best for us. And so, we have a lot of those heritage grains that are around, and a lot of people have, you know, revived them. And it's amazing how many are in the marketplace. So there's that. And there's also in regard to, you know, baking methodology. Is this the best grain for this product? It's easy to you know, think about apples. I think it's easy for people to think about that like they're baking apples or apples are eating out of hand. Their apples that are good for cider. What grain, you know, what do you intend to do with that grain? Is that a leavened product? Is it fermented? Is it something that you need a strong gluten matrix? I think those are the kind of the broader questions rather than the category of grain, but how we intend to use it and where
1: we intend to grow it. What is getting the next generation of bread makers excited? What's animating everybody and what animates you?
2: I'm, I'm a super fortunate person because I, I work in uh, a university that one of the colleges is a culinary school, College of Food Innovation and Technology, and we attract really great young people, you know, who are interested in food and food systems and um, in a lot of different ways. And I just, you know, always wanna take the time to say that the young people that I work with are, are, you know, amazing. They're inquisitive, they're interesting, they're interested. I, I feel that young, and in the same way, I'm fortunate, like I've given seminars at Sterling and I'm like, these people are super cool. And the young people that I work with are super cool. And just, I think we always need to remind older generations that this generation has a lot going on and some of their weaknesses are the weaknesses that we've handed them. So when I look around and see, you know, what's the interest? It's really interesting in the context of the artisan bread industry, because I'm 53, and you know, uh, the people who came into the artisan bread world with me, uh, we learned a lot of new information from our, a lot of our friends from, from Europe, primarily, and we learned a certain way of doing it. And then we really are into another generation of, of bread bakers, and they look at it differently, like every generation does. And they're like, well, why do you do it that way? And I was like, because I learned how to do it that way. And they're like, okay, well, I'm going to do it this way. And yeah. and you're like, eh, it's going to be a disaster. And it works out fine, <laughs> and it's and it's great because we need another perspective to look at traditional rules and see how much we can bend them.
0: I know that that baking is is a science, but I also wanted to know within bread baking if it's also an art.
2: It it is, and it's also kind of intuition. Mm. And it's 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 a uh, it's a, a struggle always between and this is I don't think will ever be answered, you know, is it a craft or an art? We actually have one and we we call them essential questions uh, in our curriculum at Johnson Wales. And that's one of the questions. Is baking a, a, an art, a craft or a science? And these essential questions are designed to not have an answer, you know, right? (laughs) It's all of those. It's all of those. And it's true. We like, we definitely have a scientific approach. There's a breakdown of complex carbohydrates by alpha amylase into simple sugars, which is metabolized by yeast and it creates energy, carbon dioxide, alcohol, and organic acids. We want them, we want everyone to know that, you know. And it's an art because we can make these beautiful things out of. Out of uh, simple ingredients, and it's a craft because you need to have someone be able to bring those things together. The intuition part is is also important as far as like transcending both of those, right? And we need to also, you know, use our powers of observation and bring that into it, and and so then it becomes more crafty you know <laughs> so it's a blending it's a blending of all of those and and i think the best bread bakers have a science foundation they have hand skills or you know what we kind of think of as an artist and then they have this craft sense of you know this is how i manipulate my variables this is how i use my paint or my clay or my wood or my flour to create something you know based on the characteristics of that ingredient. And then you throw in, you know, fermentation in there. It's a living thing. So it's not static.
1: Well, you speak of all of these different inputs, Richard, tell me or tell us, if you would, and our listeners, some of the concerns you have,
2: there are the typical and overarching concerns that we all have about global climate change and monoculture and taking over, uh, you know, corporate takeover of our food systems. I'm thinking about like from a corporate level, right? Mm-hmm. From like from like genetic modification. It's very easy, though, to, to be optimistic and hopeful about the where we've come in the past twenty-five years, and if if we think for those people who are listening who weren't around 24, 25 years ago, you know, to have this type of food culture that we have now is a momentous step forward. And those nineteen-seventies eras breads in mid-Michigan that I remember, uh, we have so much that augments that. And those are still that that food culture is from the seventies is still out there, but we have a lot of other opportunities. For those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to be in a spot where we can procure those things and can afford to buy those things. And that, unfortunately, is not the truth for a lot of people in this country, uh, in this world. So when I, although I, I worry and I reflect on the, the way the kind of global climate and environment and food systems is drifting I'm an optimist at heart, and I know that there are all these things that have happened in the past even five to ten years where we have local grain growing and 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 we have um, uh, places like Elmore Mountain Bread and American Newstone Mills, which is just south of Sterling College, where they're baking a huge amount of bread with grain that's grown in Vermont and that's milled on their own mill that's manufactured in Vermont, and that that food system has become more closed and um they're buying local grain and milling it there and and feeding people and it's happened all over the world and a greater consciousness and I guess it's you know also because we can start feeding a new generation under a new food system so that children who are eight and ten or younger, it doesn't matter the age, get used to and expect high quality food, you know, really good pizza crust, really good pizza, we won't ever be able to take that away. You know, the consciousness of people is uh, partly, I think, due to looking at a twisted food system and thinking this is Mm -hmm. not right. You know, like what else, what else is out there? And then the next step is for the people who are privileged to participate in that marketplace and and whether that's supply side or consumer side, figure out how we make this more equitable, right? And there's a really good example of this system, this bread called the approachable loaf, which people are trying to get out to other communities that may not be able to afford a $12 loaf of bread, you know, but still want to benefit from a whole grain Mm -hmm. bread product. So I'm hopeful that those optimistic things and those like outbursts of energy in the food in the food system and, and the people who have a, a dedication to providing really high quality food to their local communities overcomes you know other more disturbing trends.:
0: What do you say is the relationship between people police and and bread or baking?
2: It's very strong. I, I feel really lucky. Currency monetizes it, obviously, this fundamental food that is global and transcends so many uh, communities and cultures, right? So we have this staff of life and, and we have bread this in South America and North America and Europe. And we think of things like baguettes, but we also have to remember there are things like Ethiopian injera. And mm-hmm. North, North European yeah. rye breads, yep. and even as globalization has happened, and as the artisan baking world has come together, we see you know traditionally rice-based and buckwheat-based uh, cultures in Asia also embrace uh, more Western styles of bread and put their own twist on it. Mm-hmm. And really, it you know if you go a little deeper than bread, it's it's a grain-based it's grain-based cultures. And and whether it's um, rye of northern and eastern Europe, or buckwheat and rice of Asia, or the great wheat fields of you know North America, that is a common thread that uh, really unites people. Have you ever met anyone who who said, "Oh, I don't like bread"? <laughs> <You know? laughs> like people don't. People might not want to eat bread for whatever dietary mm-hmm. reason but no one has ever walked into a you know a room or a bakery with freshly baking bread Mm. and you could even include pancakes with that and biscuits and say oh man that smells terrible you know no nobody nobody
0: you just painted a whole picture in my head there i just got like i just saw myself walking into a bakery with fresh oh and and the smells and with some butter and it's just you got me very emotional right there.
1: <laughs> you, you just brought us a cinematic audience, right?
0: <laughs> but just learning about, you know, the connections that are made because of bread and the stories that can be told about bread and around bread. So thank you again for for joining us today.
1: Yes, and again, thank you so much, Richard, uh, for your time and and knowledge. It, it's been fun.
2: Yeah, no, thank you so much. It's always a, uh, a pleasure to speak to my friends at Sterling, and there's still lots of good work to do.
0: If you enjoyed this conversation, do come back for The Commendation.
1: We'll spend a few more minutes with our most recent guests, identifying the specific works that inspire them so you can root further, draw new sources of nourishment, and connect to the emergence of vital possibilities.
0: And before we come to a close, Sterling acknowledges that the land on which we gather, places now known as Vermont and Kentucky, are the traditional and unceded territories of several indigenous peoples, the Abenaki in the north and the Shawnee, Cherokee, Chickasaw and Osage people to the south.
1: We also learn in and from a range of landscapes that belong to other indigenous peoples and more than human kin.
0: As we seek deep reciprocal relationships with nature, We respect and honor the place-based and cultural wisdom of Indigenous ancestors and contemporaries.
1: Words of acknowledgement and intention are just a first step. We must match them with acts of respect and repair.
0: Thanks so much for listening. You can subscribe to Emergency to Emergence wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: And a very special thanks to Sterling alum Fern Maddie for her musical creations.
0: For more information on how Sterling is advancing ecological thinking and action, visit www.sterlingcollege.edu.
1: If listening has prompted something new to emerge in you, we invite you to share your thoughts as a written message or voice recording, which you can send to podcasts at sterlingcollege.edu.
0: Until next time, this is Emergency to Emergence.